20 years ago. I was living in the northeast corner of the United States in a very uh, rural uh, community. And I'd been working quite diligently for a few years. And I was living in a commune. And uh, one day, one of the women in the commune uh, mentioned to me that she was going away for a couple of weeks on holiday. And uh, I was at that point in my life where, boy, I needed a holiday. I needed a break. And so I said, well, why don't you sign me up too? I'd, I, I'd just soon go on a holiday uh, for a couple of weeks myself. And uh, 10 days later or so, we got in the car and drove a couple of hours away to where we were going to be on holiday. And <clears throat> we had come to a uh, former Catholic monastery where we were told there was going to be a retreat. And uh, we came into this monastery and uh, went into the building. And it was, we had uh, signed up to do the last two weeks of the first three-month course in the States doing this type of practice. And at that time, I had no interest in meditation, spirituality, Buddhism, nothing of the sort. It was the furthest thing from my mind. And we walked into this monastery, or this, uh, this where they were having this retreat, and uh, much like you here, walking around slowly, looking at the ground, there were about 60 people walking around, silent, looking at the floor, not looking at us and not speaking to us. And um, we didn't know quite what to do, so we just kind of stood around until someone finally pointed us in a direction towards the meditation hall. And we saw this uh, meditation hall, and there was a schedule on the outside of the door. And it was much like the schedule here, 4 o'clock or 4.30, get up, uh, walk and sit, have breakfast, uh, walk and sit, walk and sit, walk and sit, have lunch, walk and sit, walk and sit, walk and sit, have tea, walk and sit. Uh, seven o'clock, talk. Uh, we said, ah, well, at least we get an hour a day we can talk. Uh, so, we were mistaken. But, for some reason, we decided to stay. And it was the worst two weeks of my life. <laughs> Much like these first two days. I sat way up back, I leaned against the piano. And it was sheer and utter agony the whole two weeks. At the end of two weeks, we broke silence, uh, talked for an hour or so, and went home. And I didn't meditate or do anything for the next two years. But there was something awakened in me from that experience which has kind of propelled or has dragged me through the practice to this place here today. And I've often wondered, what was it that was awakened in that experience of sitting and walking in silence and just being with myself and hearing the talks and just coming to that uh, type of experience? It was as if hearing the Dhamma for the first time was like 
hearing someone describing what had been going on in my head for the first time, and it was clear. And it suddenly, all of my experience made sense, and it became clear what the whole purpose of all that activity was. It wasn't based on knowledge, because I hadn't read any books, and I didn't really get anything, get that much out of the Dharma talks, or the talks in the evening. But there was some clear apprehension of the truth within me. That clarity, or that initial uh, clarity and understanding and, and confidence is the seed or the foundation for the arising of uh, faith or confidence. And that faith or that confidence in an understanding, confidence in a teacher, confidence in a particular practice, and even confidence in oneself to actually undertake a practice of awakening is a necessary uh, ingredient or factor of mind to be cultivated in practice. In fact, we could say that the development of uh, verified faith or confidence, the increasing strength of um, confidence that we have in practice and our understanding is the whole path of practice. And in fact, confidence does, in the course of practice, become stronger and more durable, less shaken by uh, the ups and downs of our mind, the whims of uh, current popularity, and whatever else is going on. It becomes actually a factor that controls or guides the mind in this spiritual awakening. But this confidence is only one of five factors of mind that become highly developed, uh, working in unison to guide us and to uh, move us along in this path of awakening. Tonight I want to speak about these five uh, spiritual or controlling faculties of the mind. And the first of these is confidence. The second is energy. The third is mindfulness or the power of observation. The fourth is concentration. And the fifth is wisdom. And these five factors, or these five faculties, work together, support each other reciprocally, and the path of practice is one of incrementally uh, developing these factors. And their relationship is such that confidence is the cause for and gives rise to energy. Energy is the cause of and gives rise to mindfulness, or the ability to observe. Mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness, gives rise or is the cause for concentrating of the mind. 
concentration of the mind is the cause for or gives rise to understanding wisdom, which in turn supports our confidence or supports our faith. So I want to speak about each of these factors of mind a little bit so that we can begin to see them in operation in our practice, recognize their presence or absence, and to show the uh, training of mind that develops wisdom and understanding. On the first night of the retreat, I spoke about the training in morality or the training of behavior in speech that leads to purity of behavior and a level of happiness and harmony living in community. Last night I spoke about the training in concentration of the mind or the purification of the mind where in putting aside the hindrances or in recognizing the distractions of mind and seeing through them we get to the experience of the clear, lucid, uncontaminated mind training and concentration that leads to the happiness of seclusion of mind. Tonight I want to speak about the third training, the training in the development of wisdom or understanding. So the first of these factors of mind is, is confidence. Confidence is a better translation of the Pali word sadha, because faith uh, connotes uh, some, some meanings which uh, are inaccurate. The confidence of faith that we need to undertake practice or to undertake a spiritual discipline of awakening is not blind faith. It is not the faith in anyone's word or text uh, as a source of dogma. In fact, the whole of this path of awakening is one of check it out for yourself. Whatever you hear from teachers, whatever you read in books, whatever you hear from friends, check it out for yourself. If it ain't so for you, don't believe it. There's no dogma, there's no blind faith needed. And in fact, A spirit of inquiry or investigation is what's needed. A spirit of looking deeply into your own experience to test your understanding or to test your level of confidence and faith. Confidence uh, works to initially clarify the mind. My experience at, that, at the end of that two-week retreat was one of clearly understanding the nature of spiritual practice and the direction in which spiritual practice or the practice of awakening leads one. That clarity was based or on some personal experience. So faith or confidence is based on our experience. It's not based on want to believe it's based on experience. And it has the function of settling the mind a little bit. Answering some of the doubts 
settling some of the confusion that we might initially have in our spiritual task. It also serves, confidence also serves as a foundation for uh, sustaining our interest in this endeavor. It's not an easy task that we have undertaken here. And if we can't sustain our interest, we'll never get on with it. And it's a, a level of confidence in yourself, in this particular path of uh, practice, in your teacher, in the teaching, that is the source for your being able to sustain your interest in practice. And when the mind has that initial clarification and a basis for sustained interest, then we can aspire to our uh, spiritual goal or to our awakening with some confidence, with some determination. We should understand that when we come to practice, when we come to our understanding of practice through hearing from others or reading from books, that that level of confidence is borrowed from someone else. It's not ours. We're borrowing someone else's faith and confidence and uh, understanding to begin our own practice. And it often happens in our own practice that we forget that faith and that confidence and we end up in a turmoil, kind of lost, without any confidence, without any faith, and wondering, what am I doing here? What has this guy got to say that's important to me? And what does, have, what does watching your breath or your movement of your legs have to do with insight anyway? And all confidence can be out the window. Such times of practice come. They're good for practice. Because in the face of uh, wavering confidence or the loss of that borrowed confidence, we develop our own. We strengthen our own seed of understanding and our own tentative steps along the spiritual path. So understand that confidence or faith is a variable quantity. It's not there in spades all the time. It comes and it goes, and we continue to practice with or without it, thereby strengthening and uh, verifying our own understanding. So when we have this initial uh, level of experience and confidence in practice, then we get on with the task at hand, whatever that task at hand is. And here, it's sitting and walking. And for as low energy as sitting is, it takes a lot of energy to do, as you may have noticed. It's not physical energy that we need so much, it's mental energy. And yet, that mental energy is a uh, tricky substance, or it's a tricky element. What is it? Physical energy we know. If you're up and moving and, and lifting and uh, moving the body around, there's physical energy clearly. Mental energy is a much more ephemeral uh, experience. How much energy 
how much mental energy does it take to feel the body sitting right now? Doesn't take much, really. All it takes is that determination and that turning of the mind to notice. That's how much mental energy is required. Not much. Just enough. If we try harder, we distract ourselves. So it's not how much energy we need in practice, it's how to balance our energy. It's the amount of energy in balance to be with the present experience, to be in the present moment. But even to do that, even to get just that amount of mental energy requires some determination, some resoluteness in the mind, and some reason for doing it. Why bother? We come here to, to practice for many different reasons. Some may come to uh, relax, just to relax, get away from the family for a weekend. Some may come to uh, a little more profound reason, to get unstressed, not just to relax, but to unstress themselves. Or we may come to uh, heal some part of ourselves. Or we may come to get a little bit of uh, uh, self-knowledge. Or we may come for some uh, emotional uh, release or stability, or for some clarity. Or we may come for some mythically proportioned uh, reason total awakening, liberation of the mind, whatever that can mean. It's a mythic vision of where practice leads, or what is possible through practice, that can evoke the energy needed to sustain the endeavor. If we're merely satisfied to relax, oh well, one sitting or two sittings, and uh, we can feel quite relaxed. And then our interest and our energy wanes because we've met our goal. Or if we come to de-stress after a couple of days, maybe we can feel quite relieved. And our interest and energy wanes because we've met our goal. But when the goal or the vision of what practice can lead to is freedom of mind, Awakening, peace, unshakable happiness. Now then we've got ourselves a, a vision that can sustain our energy. But even then, there needs to be some sense of urgency to do it now. We can have that vision and put it off for another week. What creates the energy, or what calls forth the energy, is a sense of urgency that now is the time. Not next week, but now. And we can reflect on the rare opportunity that we have here, to have the time, the place, uh, the, the support of the center and the people who run it, the cooks, the managers, rare opportunity to all come together at this time. That can arouse a sense of now is the time to do it. 
Once I was practicing in Thailand, and I was in a uh, monastery near the Cambodian border, uh, where in, in a little village of Laotians, and there were there were no no one in the village spoke any English, and I didn't speak any Thai or Lao, and it was in a little monastery with just two other monks in the forest, and at this particular monastery, uh, we would. Uh, go for alms round in the village at about 6.30 in the morning. And we'd get back and we'd eat about 8 o'clock. And by 8.30, we were done eating for the day. And we wouldn't eat again till 8 o'clock the next morning. So when you only eat one meal a day, you eat a lot. <laughs> and it happened that in this village, what we got on alms round was sticky rice, which is very heavy and sticky, and ground up meat. And that was about it. So, I would go on my arms round, come back, have my big bowl of sticky rice and ground up meat, and then I would go try to meditate for the rest of the day. Well, it's quite difficult meditating with a full belly, as you know. So, uh, I knew that if I sat, I would fall asleep instantly. So, my cootie, my little cabin, was up on stilts to keep the uh, jungle animals from coming in the cabin. So, since the sun was up by 8.30, 9 o'clock, baking hot, I would stand under my uh, cabin in the shade for a few hours, two or three hours, while I digested my food. That way I would stay awake. Well, the shade was the place where the flies hung out, and there were quite a lot of house flies there, and they would continually land on my legs and irritate, as you know, like the flies in here sometimes irritate. So I had a little towel, uh, dish towel, that I would just keep in my hand and would swish around my, my legs to get the flies off when they were really irritating me. <laughs> so, you know, I'd be standing, noting, standing, touching, standing, touching, swish, swish, standing, touching, swish, swish, standing, touching. Ah, and then once I felt something on my foot, which didn't feel like a uh, fly. And so I opened my eyes and I looked down on my foot and there was a snake about four feet long crawling across my foot. Needless to say, I moved very quickly, probably not mindfully, but I had that sense of urgency to practice for the rest of the day. Tremendous energy comes when there's that sense of urgency. Now, for the rest of the retreat, I have put this snake here behind me. <laughs> so you just pay attention carefully. <laughs> Whatever it takes to, to arouse your own sense of this is the time to do the work. Reflecting on others you've known who've practiced and their quality of practice or the rarity of conditions in your own life, whatever it takes, use that. Call that to mind at the beginning of each sitting and let that arouse that energy that you need. We don't need to struggle to arouse energy. We just need to remember why we're here. So the first of these controlling or spiritual faculties is confidence, which when we have some level of confidence in what we're doing, we can arouse that energy needed to be present. Not much, but it does need continuous arising. And when we have 
that energy, that determination to practice. And then we listen to the instructions and we begin to sit, begin to walk, we begin to notice what's going on. That noticing is mindfulness. That ability to observe and to know what we are observing comes with that energy. Learning to observe is most important. Learning to feel and know and see our own experience. Wonderful story here about learning how to observe. <clears throat> Back in the middle of the last century, there was a, a famous Swiss naturalist who had studied glaciers. Came to America and was wildly popular as a, uh, on the speaking circuit. And he was invited to teach at Harvard. He was unique in that he was one of the first of the breed of uh, naturalists who actually uh, went into the field to look at what they were talking and teaching and studying rather than just reading other people's books about it. So he was teaching his students how to observe. And because he was so famous and popular, a number of uh, students wanted to uh, practice with him, or they wanted to uh, him as their uh, graduate advisor, so to speak. And uh, they would apply to him and uh, come for an interview, and uh, this is how it would proceed from there. The initial interview at an end, Louis Agassiz, he was the, uh, uh, the naturalist, the teacher. Louis Agassiz would ask the student when he or she would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. He or she was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder was one of those students, and he described that experience as one of his life's most memorable turning points. He writes, In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour, the fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kind were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man should look again. <laughs> I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when, toward the close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not but I see how little I saw before. 
The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, oh, look at your fish. In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value which he could not buy, with which he could not part. We're fortunate here. We don't have to look at a fish. <laughs> but look, look, look is a task. Observe, look, feel, see, come to know. Body, mind. It's difficult to learn, to do it. It's not difficult to do, it's difficult to remember to do. It's really easy to be mindful. We just need someone to remind us to do it. Notice what it feels like sitting right now. Okay. All right. Notice what the breath feels like right now. All right. And just keep reminding yourself each moment. So this mindfulness is the power of the mind to observe. It's also remembering to do it. It's not the remembering of memories that mindfulness refers to. It's the remembering to be present with the mind. As we remember to be present with our experience, to observe, to know, to look, to see, what do we see? What do we discover in our experience? In broad categories, we could say we discover unpleasantness and pleasantness. Or maybe by today, it's only unpleasantness. And if we look a little closer and we divide that pleasantness and unpleasantness, we can see that we observe physical experience, tingling, itching, tightness, heat, numbness, pain, throbbing, and we could go around the room and list another half dozen or a dozen more. We observe the body, physical experience. We observe the mind, thinking, remembering, planning, judging, joy, happiness, frustration, anger, the hindrances that I spoke about last night, sleepiness, doubt, desire, clinging, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, Boredom. The mental terrain is vast. The physical terrain is vast. But as we stay in there, hang in there, and keep coming back to the present moment, we begin to get familiar with what's going on. What the nature of this body and mind is. Recognizing more quickly each time we come back to the present moment. It's helpful. In this exploration of this psychophysical terrain, it's really helpful to have no expectations of what you will see 
what you will discover. But rather, to just look. Walk through that terrain and take a look at whatever's there. Whether it's expected or not, see it as it is. And for that, we need a commitment to the truth. To see things as they really are and to acknowledge it to ourselves. That's the way it is. It's painful, it's pleasant, it's hot, it's throbbing, it's pulsing, it's boring, it's joyful, it's whatever it is. Just acknowledging to ourselves, this is what I see. Really helpful, really necessary to have no expectations, to have a commitment to the truth. And to have a mind that is willing to begin again. Because, as you know, we slip off of the present moment continually. As someone who has practiced a lot here said today in one of our groups, sometimes she thinks she's almost there for a second, and then she realizes she isn't. And that's how quick the mind is. It's gone before we get there. And so we really have to have this kind of patient persistence that's willing to come back and begin again. Come back from that fantasy, come back from that memory, come back from that mood, from that forgetfulness, from that space in, from that space out. Begin again, begin again, begin again. To discover anew what is in this moment. To do that, we need to learn to let go of what we're hanging on to. I'm sure all of us have had, have found ourselves somewhere today, caught up in a fantasy that we would just as soon live out. Some fantasy that didn't involve being here. Some preferable place or experience to this. And yet, as much as we might fuel that fantasy, it's just not enough to, to live in. We need to learn to let go to just put aside our clinging, our attachments, our attractions to the pleasant. We also need to confront and look at our fear, our resistance to unpleasant, our resistance to fearful, our resistance to difficult physical experience, like pain, and difficult mental experience which we have a lot of, whether it's shame, embarrassment, guilt, self-hatred, judgment. We have a lot of difficult mental, emotional stuff that we'd rather not look at. That resistance to looking is fear. Acknowledge it. Just acknowledge how afraid we are to look. Tremendously freeing. Unpleasantness is just what it is. It's just unpleasant. And that's okay. We don't have to like it. We just have to see it. And then we can let go of it. So this mindfulness, this ability to observe, a third of the spiritual faculties or factors of mind that get aroused and cultivated on this path of awakening. And as we put in our time, 
as we continually come back to the present moment, begin again, find ourselves distracted, bring ourselves back. Find ourselves distracted again, bring ourselves back again for the tenth, hundredth, or thousandth time. Slowly we begin to patch together our mind. We begin to collect our fragmented mind. Little bits and pieces of our mind are scattered throughout the universe, caught in the past, caught in the future, caught in fantasies galore. And each time we discover that we've wandered off in some other place, some other time, some other event, we collect a little piece of the mind, bring it back, focus it in the present moment. And we drift off and we find ourselves in another fantasy and we collect that piece of mind and we bring that back and focus it in the present moment. And slowly we begin to collect the mind to bring together the fragmented nature of the mind so that the mind becomes focused, concentrated, collected. In this practice, what we are focusing on is the changing nature of the psychophysical phenomena. Experience of the body, experience of the mind. And so each moment's experience is different. There's the breath coming in, the breath going out, the pain in the knee, the ache in the neck, the thoughts, the memories, the feelings, the moods, the remembering to be mindful, back to the breath. And so the experience continually changing gives the appearance of no stillness, no concentration, no tranquility. What we're developing here is the factors of mind that collect and focus. The object of our attention is changing. Concentrated mind is more uh, visible or more noticeable when we do, uh, when we practice a concentration meditation, whether it's a visualization, a mantra, uh, a loving-kindness, or a reflection of some sort. And then, because the object that we are collecting our mind on is the same moment after moment, we get a sense of great stillness, great clarity, great focus. And so it's really easy to see the nature of a concentrated mind in a concentration practice, because the object stays the same moment after moment. The factors of mind that come together in that concentration are the same that come together in insight when the object continually changes. It's the ability to connect our attention and sustain our attention on the object. That joy or interest that I spoke about last night, comfort of mind and body, and single-pointedness. Those are the factors of absorption which come together consistently in one object when we practice samatha or concentration meditation, come together momentarily in insight on whatever object or experience is happening at that time. The factors of mind get developed equally and the concentration is comparable. The object of attention is different. In any event, the mind collects, or we spend uh, our time and energy collecting the mind by coming back to the present experience whenever we discover that we're distracted.
If I hold up my hand here and ask you, what do you see? You could say, well, I see a hand. And if I say, well, come a little closer and take another look, you can say, well, I see, you know, four fingers and a thumb. And if you get a little closer still, you can see the knuckles and the uh, fingerprints and the palm prints on the hand. And if you get really close, you can see the pores and the hairs and the scars. And if you took a magnifying lens, you could see even more. And if you put a piece of the hand under a microscope, you could see infinite details. And if you put it under an electron microscope, you wouldn't know what you were looking at, but you'd be knowing a lot about some little piece. Now, the mind that gets concentrated sees more detail. So as the mind gets concentrated, it's as if we move closer to our experience. We notice more of what's going on in our body, in our mind. And so just as we get closer to any object by moving towards it and by looking with a more focused lens, we get more information, more knowledge about that experience. So too with the mind. As the mind collects and we look at our experience, we gain knowledge. We see more of our experience, more details to our experience. You notice this. So you're walking, you're sitting, and even though we're trying to focus on the primary object, the breath or the walking meditation, the movement of the leg, yes, we see more detail in there. We, 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 can, we can begin to notice a little bit more that's going on. But we also notice more quickly where the mind goes. More thoughts, more feelings, more judgments, more sensations in the body. The map of this psychophysical mechanism here is getting filled in just from hanging in there, paying attention, looking more carefully. In time, after we have uh, uh, collected enough data, so to speak, from just observing this thing that we are, we begin to notice the characteristics of what's happening. We begin to notice that all experience is transitory. It comes and goes. Something else comes and goes. Where is the pain that you were feeling in the last sitting? It's gone. Where is that anticipation for dinner or for uh, lunch? And that's gone. Where is that sense of satisfaction after having eaten? That too is gone. Where is the boredom from uh, this afternoon's sitting? And that's gone. What experience have you ever had that you, is still present? Nothing. We begin to not just know that from having heard it or know that from having read it. We begin to know that from our direct experience. We're with something and it's gone. We get to it and it disappears. We begin to notice more deeply into the nature of our experience as a human being. Everything changes. We also notice that a lot of our experience is unpleasant. Have you found any particular physical experience, any particular mental experience that you want to stay in and with forever? If you could. By its very nature of changing, no experience can provide that sense of completion, fulfillment, and satisfaction that we're looking for. 
and we're looking for a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. What is it that's driving your life? Completion. Ease. The end. Satisfaction. Whatever it is that we're looking for cannot be found in this experience. We don't have to read that in the book. We don't have to hear that from a teacher. We begin to see it in our very experience. And not only the impermanence or the inability of experience to bring us a sense of satisfaction, we also discover that it is completely out of control. The mind and the body are out of our control. We sit down and we ask ourselves or we tell ourselves to be mindful. Can we control that? No. Okay. So we say, okay, body, please be comfortable. Can we control that? All right, well, let's just try being happy. Can I be happy? No. We say, my body, my mind. It's a joke. We can't control the body and the mind. And we begin to see that in our experience. Not just hearing it from me, not just reading in a book. We begin to notice it in every moment of experience. This knowledge of impermanence, of the inability of experience to bring a sense of completion or satisfaction, and the experience of the uh, non-autonomous nature of this experience. We don't have any control over it. That knowledge is invaluable. Profound wisdom from watching simple experience. And why is it so profound? What's so significant about everything changes and it doesn't provide much satisfaction and it's out of control anyway? What a relief. We don't have to look for that state of mind that's going to last forever. That state of happiness, you know, that we're looking for, that's going to last forever. Because we know there is no such thing. Happiness does not stay. Nothing is permanent. All right. So what's the sense of, or what is the benefit of seeing that no experience, no physical mental experience is going to provide that sense of completion and satisfaction and fulfillment for our life? We can stop looking. We can just be with this experience and let that be the fulfillment of this moment. It's not going to stay, but it's going to be here for now, for one moment. And seeing deeply into the lack of control or the inability of us to uh, control our mind and body. What's the benefit of that? What's the wisdom behind that knowledge? have to be careful about this one. But essentially, we're not, uh, we're off the hook. We don't have to feel guilty about what we're experiencing. We don't have to take the blame. We don't have to feel ashamed. We don't have to be embarrassed for what we experience. It's not our fault, so to speak. We experience it, we notice it, it comes, it goes, profound wisdom 
freedom of mind from seeing deeply into the nature of this experience, its impermanence, its lack of ability to satisfy, and its out-of-controlness. Can you see that the mind that knows these deeply in every experience is free? Not attached, not looking for any particular experience, not resisting any experience, not in control, free, not bound or limited by any idea of itself. That's wisdom. And when we get a glimpse, when we get just a glimpse of that freedom of mind that comes from that understanding, it supports and develops and strengthens our confidence in what we're doing. Our confidence in ourselves, our own ability to do this path, to walk this path of practice. Confidence in this particular practice, confidence in our teacher, confidence in our own understanding. And that increase in support and confidence, again, is the basis for sustaining our interest in arousing our energy. More energy, more observation. More observation, greater focus of mind. Greater focus of mind, greater wisdom. Greater wisdom, in turn, supports our confidence. And the path of practice is this gradual and cyclic, uh, reciprocal uh, development and maturing of these factors of mind. And you can see it in your own practice. Without confidence, it's impossible to practice. Without energy, it's impossible to be mindful. Without mindfulness, the mind stays fragmented. The fragmented mind sees only superficially. We live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. This practice brings us to the reality which we are, dispelling the illusion of the appearance of things, leading to knowing we are nothing and we are everything. <laughs> 